Hello and welcome to the Nature Garden podcast from the Weekending Show team on Lionheart Radio. It's a weekly trip down the garden lane with birds, bees, flowers and trees. And coming up today, Tom Pattinson is busy with seedlings and virtual garden visits. Tom Cadwallander is nesting and looking at bird nest designs. And our old friend Steve Lowe is back. He's been helping crayfish in our rivers, working with the Rivers Trust. All coming up on The Nature Garden. considering the variations in our weather and microclimate management and he's bringing on some canny seedlings over to you tom the past week has been quite interesting weather wise especially if you have a greenhouse with no heat source and you have some tender seedlings growing in it which i have during the day the sky's been lovely and blue and clear and it's been quite warm up to 12 14 celsius in the evening It's been down to minus one, minus two outdoors and the grass has been white with frost in the mornings. At least two evenings and two mornings were like that during the week. So how do you cope in a greenhouse? This natural heat from the sun, when it vanishes at night time, the temperature in there could go down to minus two if I let it. And during the day, it can soar up to 20 plus celsius if i allowed it great fluctuation far too much for young seedlings developing but we can perform a balancing act manipulate it if i know it's going to be frosty at night i have automatic vents in the roof and they close themselves anyway when they're ready but i close down the doors and the side vents myself about two o'clock in the afternoon 2 30 and I build up a head of heat, a warmth, which carries it deep into the night, early hours, in fact. And that sort of uh, nullifies the effect of the frost outside. I went in on six o'clock one morning this week, in the morning, to check, and it was zero Celsius. Outdoors, it was minus two. So that's the difference. By nine o'clock, it had risen the temperature from, from, from zero inside the greenhouse, from six o'clock zero up to 16 Celsius, and that's 61 Fahrenheit at nine o'clock. If that had continued, it would have gone over 20 by lunchtime. So I opened the door, opened the side vents, and kept the temperature down. It's all about balancing it at the moment. So what about the seedlings? Well, that's another point to mention at this time. We grow seedlings in trays, scatter them round, broadcast them in a tray. They come up and we dig them up when it's time, about maybe four, five, six centimetres tall, a little bit taller than that sometimes, and we transfer them to other trays, prick them out or put them into their first little pots. We do that. But cell trays, which I use a lot of, 
have those little cells in them and the seedling is able to ger the seed is germinates the seedling can make its own little plug of root around uh, or it grows in its own little plug of root around in the cell and uh, they're easily transferred from the cell tray to their first pots but people make a mistake sometimes of picking them up by the main stem that's that is that's not that's not good pick them up by the leaf if you break a bit of leaf off when you take them from the cell it can grow more leaves the plant but if you damage the main stem it's finished another thing simple thing but don't try to pull them up straight away from the cell there they've been growing in for a few weeks get a pencil at the bottom in the drainage hole or your finger your little finger and poke them up a bit and loosen them and then lift them out and put them into a pot another little thing about potting them when they go as a plug we call it the plug with the, from the cell tray with that lovely ball of root ready to run uh, you put them in the next pot say a nine centimeter dimension pot you pot them into that and grow them on for a few weeks and as soon as the roots start to circle you don't want it to become pot bound you transfer them to the next pot but don't make it a great big pot because if there's too much space for growth in there they turn in on themselves you pot seedlings and young plants on in easy stages small pot litre pot two litre pot and so on and that way things will go well for you a word about tomatoes i mentioned the cold at night tomatoes are the plants that come closest to talking to me i don't i do talk to my plants and rather than speak back in my language they will show me a sign if there's something wrong if they're dry a bit like fuchsias the leaves will droop and you know gosh i've got to get that that this plant out of this situation give it some water that's a tomato and if it's been cold at night just like we humans the leaves turn blue they have a blue tinge to them next morning when you go to the greenhouse it, they suffer a check because of that and that's what I'm trying to prevent at the, at the moment with my seedlings so don't let the temperature get too low and remember when you've got young plants in the greenhouse at the moment it's a balancing act keeping that temperature under control Some top tips there from Tom P on seeds and seedlings and transplantation from tray to pot. You may have noticed the birds are getting rather busy in the uh, garden and hedgerows. Some have already set up home and others are busy feathering their beds. Tom Cadwallander has been looking into birds' grand and not so grand designs. Hello Tom. It's that time of year when birds are, are thinking about nesting. And in fact, that's the only thing they've got in their mind at the minute is to build nests to, and to lay eggs and to raise young. In fact, some, some birds have actually been nesting for, uh, for some little while. Uh, I've seen young blackbirds around, uh, hopping around. They will have, they've been around sort of from kind of mid-March mid onwards. Quite amazing, really, when you think about it. But also, 
uh, incredible species like herons. Herons are quite long-legged, sort of lanky birds, which kind of wade around in the in the rivers and on the shore. Uh, these birds, believe it or not, build vast, vast nests, huge, huge nests, right on the top of uh, conifers as well. Uh, and you think, well, how can that ungainly bird actually uh, lay eggs in there? But just down by me, there's a nice little heronry, and uh, the, I've heard bill clacking, so there's obviously been some successful egg hatching there. And these nests are so big, they're like big plateaus on top of these trees, and they're, they're kind of big platforms. Uh, they're made of twigs mainly, but they're kind of very rustic sort of affairs. But nests come in all shapes and sizes, and the, uh, from the tiniest of nests from the uh, long-tailed tits uh, right up to the, to the aforementioned uh, herons and their big nesting platforms, and right out to the, some of the seabirds, which don't actually build nests at all. Uh, Guillemot, for example, just lays their eggs, uh, perhaps one egg, perhaps two eggs, m- mainly one egg, on top of a, of a flat rock. If you go to the Farne Islands, uh, out onto Staple, and on the pinnacles there, you'll see um, all those guillemots sort of packed in tightly, and they're all sitting on eggs, or an egg rather, and um, the egg is shaped um, like a, like a cone, but that prevents it from fall, falling off the top of the cliff. It's not really the the purpose of the design, but it's quite effective all the same. So from that through to uh, some of the tern species, and all they do is make little indentations in the uh, in in shingle uh, to to lay their eggs, uh, and and that's all it is. Right through from uh, from there to um, the the most sort of elaborate affairs of nests. Um, in fact. Um, wrens, uh, the male builds a little domed nest uh, with a little opening in it and uh, and the female goes round and she selects which nest she likes to, to, to use and so that's the one she'll, she'll pick. And these tend to be sort of in little overhangs or, or little sort of dark places and that kind of gives its, um, the, the wren its scientific name, Troglodytes troglodytes, the cave dweller. So it's the, the little domed nest with little uh, openings in so they can get through in, into there. But even some species, like sort of sand martins and kingfishers, and indeed puffins, they will uh, nest in burrows, uh, and they will dig out, they'll excavate um, burrows, but, but in the case of puffins, they will use old rabbit burrows. But they'll dig out these, these tunnels, perhaps about, um, oh, I don't know, 30 centimetres or a foot in depth, and they'll, they'll dig these into the sandbanks, and they will uh, lay their eggs right at the back of them. But some of the puffin nests, I have to tell you, they're the most grotesque and horrible things i've uh, i've had call to to try and, and and check a puffin's nest where you've got to shove your arm down the burrow and they have this habit of having a latrine uh halfway down the tunnel before you get to the nest uh, to the to the eggs and so you've got to put your your arm through and your hand through this awful latrine area and it's pretty pretty gross i have to tell you and it's quite stinky but some of the other things are, are, are quite incredible, how, you, uh, how some of the construction works. But uh, it's, it's quite incredible that, that they are sort of nesting in all sorts of different ways. But anyway, just to remind you that all nests are protected by law. 
uh, and we shouldn't be disturbing them. There are a lot of people go out to do some uh, nest recording to, to find out how nests are progressing, eggs are progressing through the young, and that's for scientific study. And these people are fully licensed. But yeah, just remember that uh, nests are protected by law and we shouldn't be doing anything that will actually disturb them. Uh, things like hedge cutting, we've got to be very, very careful of that. We shouldn't be doing that at nesting time. Shouldn't be doing it at all. So yes, nests are quite complicated and we'll perhaps go into some more detail later on. The cave dweller. I love it. And wren's nests, they're so cute. But I'll pass on the puffins, Tom. This is the Nature Garden Podcast with Carl Steinson, Tom Pattinson, Tom Cadwallander and Steve Lowe. That's lovely to welcome back Steve Lowe, an old friend to the programme. He's been working recently on protecting our rivers, and he's an official crayfish wrangler. And he's been working with the Rivers Trust, helping crayfish. Tell us a bit more about it, Steve. Hello everyone, this is Steve Lowe, and I'm currently working with the Northumberland Rivers Trust on a number of projects to improve the rivers of Northumberland. And one I'd like to share with you in particular is at Upper Denick, which is a fish pass project. And it's to try and encourage fish to get past the, the weir, which was uh, which is in the river. Most of you have been past this. If, you, if you're going into Wanek, you'll, you can see the, the castle in the distance. It looks a fantastic sight. And it is a really privileged uh, site to be working on. Um, but the thing was that the structure itself, which is very tall, by the way, uh, the the fish pass wasn't really working properly and the thought was that the entire structure had been built by Capability Brown who was a very significant historical figure um, uh, who's thought to have um, landscaped most of the uh, estate and we're working with Northumberland Estates and the Environment Agency on this project anyway using funding from a programme called the Water Environment Grant which was the Rivers Trust secured um, after a, a couple of years, uh, we found out we'd, we'd won this money and it's to restore quite a number of features on the river. Now, anyway, the, uh, the Capability Brown side of this is uh, is perhaps a, a, another story. But my role was to actually uh, find and locate and relocate any white-clawed crayfish, which are the native crayfish species, which we have um, good populations of in Northumberland uh, on some of our rivers. Unfortunately, we also have the non-native species, the signal crayfish, which is creeping in. And it's a much more aggressive species. Um, and basically, it carries a plague, which um, you know is probably uh, abazite at the moment with the, with the coronavirus, etc. So what we don't want to do is um, contaminate the native stock with any of these uh, plagues, etc. So firstly, we didn't know whether they were there. And uh, secondly, if, if they were we'd need to relocate them. Now, in order to do that, I have to have a licence. Um, I'm a licensed crayfish wrangler. And um, so I was um, uh, employed on this particular project to um, find anything that was there and relocate them. Now, it took the guys on the um, construction site um, a few days, let's say, to stop the water 
Um, our partners are Strones, and they're fantastic guys working there, they're local contractors. But we struggled a little bit with the finger in the dike. And I have to say, we had three storms come through in a whole week, which didn't help. So every time we thought we'd got the water stopped, we'd get higher water levels. Anyway, eventually we, we plugged the gap. The water stopped, and I was able to get in. And we didn't know what we were going to find, but um, very quickly it became apparent that all of the little breaks in the stonework on the side of the of the uh, structure actually had little hiding places for crayfish. And after a little while, once it started to dry out a bit, these these guys came out into the uh, the open air, and I was able to um, capture them, um, put them into a, an, an aerated bucket, um, so that they um, would would survive. I'd have to measure them and count them, etc., as well, and then relocate them to a new site, which was um, upstream of the uh, area we were working on, and we did that successfully. Now, the the key thing is we didn't know that they were there, or but we did have a suspicion they might be. Now we know that they're there, we can then uh, put this uh, into practice on the other projects that we've got in the area, and we found twenty um, adult crayfish. Uh, at this site mostly males males are bigger um, but there were three females which had um, eggs and they were carrying eggs underneath they're called buried when they've got these eggs and basically they look like lobsters and when the the tail uh, you expand that it's got eggs on it so I was very careful with those in particular um, and had to pick a part of the river that was suitable for them so we got nearly as I say nearly 20 of them also managed to find loads of eels couldn't believe it uh, we had um, over 50 eels and um relocated those as well which is which is great um so we've got everything out and that prepared the way for them for the guys to come in and put in the fish pass which is what they're doing at the moment now um work has stopped slightly because a pair of dippers have moved in and left the nest there so that's caused a little bit of a problem but we're looking forward to getting the whole thing finished and it's a, overall, it's a fantastic project and uh, well done to the Rivers Trust for picking it up and running with it. Steve Lowe reporting there on some of the brilliant work being done by the Rivers Trust and partners. Now, flower and country shows have been cancelled or postponed all over the place and it's a very difficult time for so many people in horticulture. Tom Pattinson is normally getting into the swing of things, but things are different. Well, for now. But he's not down in the dumps at all, are you, Tom? None of us like to be told we can't do something, but this time it's an exception. I can't go to Chelsea this year because Chelsea has been cancelled. Chelsea Flower Show. I love going there, meeting some of the top tradesmen in the country, horticultural trade that is, and seeing what they have, what's their latest cultivars, varieties, etc., I love the David Austin stand with their roses, English roses. He, or his firm, who constructed the rose garden at the Annick Garden. I love going to Dibley stand, Streptocarpus, and buy the latest cultivar, Streptocarpus, bring it home. They're easily raised, propagated from leaf cuttings. I have a modest collection. I root them and give them to friends, etc. Can't do any of that this year. But Dibley's have decided they're not going to be outwitted by Chelsea being cancelled. They're hosting a virtual flower show UK on Facebook 
from April the 25th to 26th and they've encouraged dozens of the country's specialist growers and nurseries to join them. I shall be watching that online, the Virtual Flower Show UK, on April the 25th, 26th. And you know, that's a way of getting round this idea of, I know the flower shows are cancelled. I can't go to Howick, the village hall there this year, the end of July. Normally Judy and I judge it. It's the first local show of the season. Can't go to Walkwith, that's been cancelled too, middle of August with the marquee, etc. Can't go to Glendale, Wooler. Gorgeous big show with the marquee, the trade stands, all the entertainment in the ring. I accept that. I'll meet up with my old friends and fellow judges next year. But I can visit gardens online. We have membership of the National Trust. We generally go to Cragside and we go to Wallington. Well, I can't get there, but I can check out what's happening there online. Uh, we also uh, are members of the Annick Garden and we Call Garden, of course. And we can't go down and have a cup of tea in the Earl Grey Tea Room after having a look around the garden at Howick. Uh, but we can see what they're up to online. And as for the Annick Garden, you've probably been doing this yourself this week. The Taihaku Cherry Orchard is in full bloom. It was on television, Look North, earlier in the week. And if you go online, they've got a webcam of that. And you can do a virtual reality tour around the Taihaku Cherry Orchard. Anna Garden. See, we're not going to be beaten by this. There are ways of getting round things, sitting in your own home and visiting these gardens. One of the things I've been doing recently is um, thinking of a garden uh, in this area, uh, going online and checking to see what they're up to, if they're registered online, if they have a website. Uh, you can do it for the whole of this country. Um, key in a famous garden that comes to mind and do a virtual reality tour or at least see some images of what's flowering at the moment. You can do it worldwide scale as well. Visit a world botanic garden. Why not? Give it a go. I've been a member of the Garden Media Guild for several years and they keep us up to date with what's happening in the horticultural world. And they um, sent a list last week, an email, a list of um, virtual reality places to visit uh, through virtual reality. And they explained that the National Gardener Scheme, that's the Yellow Book Scheme, you know, Gardens Open, where people throughout the country open their gardens for charity, charities including Macmillan Nurses. Well, that scheme has been cancelled for the year. But not to be outdone, they've launched an initiative to encourage the participating owners to film their gardens for online viewing. And these would be accessed, they're hoping, via a weekly e-newsletter and through social media. Um, I'm told by the Garden Media Guild that the Botanic Garden, the Royal Botanic Garden Edinburgh, um, they've created a virtual spring tour of their four gardens. And you can view Hitcote Greek Garden in the Cotswolds, which I've been to before. Famous garden down there. You can view it online. And even Sarah Raven's tour of Perch Hill Garden. Uh, she does a weekly bulletin showing you around the garden what's flowering at the moment. So there's no need to be deprived or feel deprived of visiting these beautiful places. We can do it in our own living room or in the study, if that's where you keep your desktop or your iPad. And here's the ironic thing this year, 
Each year, as you know, perhaps there's a National Gardening Week. And this was supposed to be starting, well, it will start, on the 27th of April, that's shortly, and runs for a week until May the 3rd. Well, the RHS magazine, The Garden, the monthly magazine Garden, which uh, for April, which I've just read, it um, says that um, because of the need for self-isolation and social distancing at the moment, they've changed the theme this year to keep gardening that's the theme keep gardening and as recent research has shown the activity this activity gardening is indeed good for our physical and mental health earlier on tom cadwallander introduced us to some of the nesting habits of our garden residents it's amazing how resourceful they are isn't it tom and nest boxes can really help our birds Birds' nests come in all different shapes and sizes, and it's quite incredible the different methods of construction they have. You think about the kind of the long-tailed tit. Quite long-tailed tits are quite a small bird, and as the name suggests, they've got a long tail, and uh, it's quite tricky to get it tucked up into into a nest. But the the nest of a uh, of a long-tailed tit is is a is a ball, really a small ball, about the size of a tennis ball. And it has a little little opening, and the, it's quite incredible. You see a long-tailed tit, they'll, they'll go into that little ball, into that little nest, and sometimes if you, if you can just peek in, you can see their, their face is sticking out, and the tail will come back over their head because it's quite long, and it has to go somewhere. But actually, long-tailed tits have what is known as a, a nest of a thousand feathers. They use feathers as um, birds' feathers as as lining to the uh, to the nest. So it's they'll they'll scoot around all sorts of hedgerows and wherever it is, looking for feathers to line this nest. And it's amazing the the the, the different sort of uh, species they've got in involved in, uh, in in actually using their feathers to to line their nest. But other species will use hair, you know, they'll use wool. And I've seen um, uh, tit species, um, blue tits and great tits, they will line them with, uh, with wool from the uh, collected from uh, fencing on, on the hillsides, you know, the, uh, or, farm, uh, or farmland. And they'll, they'll just tease out little bits of, uh, of, of, of wool and take it back to line their nest. And uh, tits are notorious for nesting in, in nest boxes. Uh, and so we have some quite close, close encounters with, uh, with tits. So we can actually quite familiar with how their nests are made. And they're usually made from, from moss, but with lined with, with hair or fur or wool, something like that. Um, but other species like, um, uh, like swallows, they will just build their nests out of mud swallows and house martens they kind of have similar nests and you'll see them on the on the banks of the of the lakes or or the shore or the rivers collecting mud to make to to construct their nests um, and they're lined with just bits of hair as well so there's the fairly basic and rudimentary constructions you know uh, there's nothing kind of fancy about them uh, but then you think about the uh, other species, likes of chaffinch and, and and bullfinch. They will build quite small nests themselves, and but they will line them with uh, with with fur uh, and hair as well. But it's the it's kind of how they're made. You can actually identify the species just by the shape of, and build of their nest, and. 
If you look further afield, you go down to, say, Australia, for example, the bowerbirds down in Australia, they'll construct bowers, uh, which are kind of like big hoops or arches. Uh, and each diff different species will have a, 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 a kind of a fixation on a different colour. And around the bower, they will have uh, little bits of, uh, of colour. They will go and collect bits of glass or bits of paper. And you go there and it, some species are kind of all, all blue or all silver or, or all gold or something like that. And uh, it's quite amazing, really, when you think about it, uh, that they, they will do it that way. But that just shows what sort of adaptation we've got when it comes to nesting. And, and really, the prime objective uh, for, for all birds at this time is to procreate and to raise young. Uh, and um, some, some nests can be up to 10, 12 eggs when you think about such small birds. But other birds, like seabirds, will be only down to um, uh, one or two eggs. And, and sometimes they will only hatch that one egg. And you think about birds of prey, um, it's, it's quite a tricky old time for birds of prey. And they will, they will only nest, uh, they'll only lay one, one egg in, their, in a nest. Uh, and so all their focus of attention can be on that one chick. But some of these nests are quite huge. And they're made of twigs and they're made of uh, branches and the kind of the, 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 you wonder how the eggs actually stay inside of them uh, because they're so loosely made. Uh, but yes, it's quite a complicated old business, this whole making nests. But when you think about some of the, uh, the, the, the species which nest in reeds, they can actually weave um, uh, the, 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 uh, grasses into making their nests and, and, and it's actually the use of tools as well which is quite incredible thin blades of grass are woven into into quite big bowls of, of kind of nests um, big bowls of wool almost uh, and that's what they look like but they will be uh, incorporated into sort of various bits of habitats where birds can can successfully be be secure and raise their young but yes it's a fantastic time of year so exciting really brilliant gosh there is such diversity in nests a fascinating subject and i think it's one we'll return to very soon so tom pattinson what's on the agenda for the next few days jobs for the week well, we're all full-time gardeners at the moment. It's just as well because there's so many jobs to do. I'm looking across uh, at uh, Viburnum, Bodlantense, Dawn. It's been flowering all winter on bare stems. Uh, lovely pink, fragrant flowers. They've faded now and it's bursting into leaf, the plant. It's about three, well over three metres tall. I've got to take a metre off at least. Um, this is the time to do it. Uh, and looking round further, I can see that the asparagus shoots are coming up now. Got some spears coming up of asparagus. Brilliant. I've been waiting for those uh, in the greenhouse as well. Daily visit. There are quite a lot of plants in the greenhouse you've got to keep tabs on. Young seedlings germinating. Get them out of the propagating case quickly so that they're not drawn or become leggy, as we say. Get them on the bench. There are other things on the bench that need potting on, otherwise they'll spoil if they stay in the cell trays. And then some of them have to go out of the greenhouse. It's a progression. They must be toughened up a bit by now. And I've got to decide which ones have to go out and face a little bit of frost because, as I said earlier, we've had frost on a couple of nights this past week. 
Now, speaking of frost, I'm looking at potatoes, got to inspect those. They've been in the soil for three weeks now. They were well shot or chitted when they went down about um, 15 centimetres below the surface. They'll be popping their little heads up, breaking the surface one day soon, and I'll cover them over with the soil, earth them up as soon as that happens. There are quite a few vegetables you can be sowing at the moment outdoors. The summer uh, turnips, um, uh, perpetual spinach, for example, and uh, carrots, uh, beetroot, um, parsnips. And if you show them in a drill, um, look into the packet. Make the drill, of course, the V-shaped drill, the length of the, your garden or your vegetable bed. And then look into the packet and work out how many seeds you've got roughly. And sow them thinly at first, the length of the row. So many people just start sowing them thickly and they run out of seeds before they reach the end of the row. Sow them very thinly first and if you've got some in the pocket at the end of the row, sow them a little bit thicker and then cover them over gently and Bob's your uncle. Um, quite a few more things are moving on in the garden. Um, the weeds, for example, now that's a big problem. I have a couple of patches, one with cooch grass in, that's Agropyron repens is its botanical name. And it's a grass, of course, and it sends these uh, stolons underground, um, rhizomatous growth, sends them underground, sends up a shoot of grass and then keeps on sending the stem underground and pops up here and there. You've got to get every piece of the stem out. The other one occurs in this garden on one or two patches is the ground elder, bishopweed or ground elder. And if you leave the smallest piece of its root in, say one centimetre, then it will regenerate and grow on again. And the only sensible way of getting rid of it is to get your garden fork and get down to it and dig it out, every last piece out. I'm doing that at the moment, but there are other uh, perennial weeds, which if you don't get them out now, give them time to flower, um, one, one year's seeds is seven years of weeds. That's the old saying, and it's quite true. So keep on top of those weeds as well. Apart from that, enjoy your garden, relax in it, and stay safe. Thanks, Tom. And yes, folks, please do stay safe. The Nature Garden Podcast is a Chevstar production. I'm Carl Steinson. Thanks to Tom Cadwallander for all the stuff on birds, Tom Pattinson for his gardening expertise, and Steve Lowe from Naturally Northumbria and the Rivers Trust on Crayfish. Thanks for listening. See you next week. <laughs>